0: Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. This is our final Oscar episode, 10 of 10, and we're closing it out with the nominees for cinematography. I've got a great panel of returning guests. First, director of photography and director Patrick Cady, whose credits include Girlfight, Bosch, and the spin off Bosch Legacy. Patrick, nice to see you again. Thanks for having me. Next, David Tutman, also known as Tut. Tut, you're a New York based cinematographer and director whose credits include Wu Tang American Saga, Girls on the Bus,
1: and Damages. Great to see you. Good to see you, Skid. How are you doing? And hi, Patrick. Nice to meet you.
2: So nice to meet you on this format. <laughs> Geeking out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing well. And I'm also glad you guys could be here that I get to geek out with you. Uh, listeners at home, you can learn more about my guests on the Internet Movie Database. If you start on the page for Below the Line, it's easy to click through and see their additional credits. The five films nominated for cinematography are All Quiet on the Western Front, Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, Elvis, Empire of Light, and Tar. We're going to discuss them in that order, and spoilers are possible, so consider this awarding. Also, apologize in advance if I mispronounce the names of any nominees. First, All Quiet on the Western Front Cinematography by James
1: Friend.
2: I mean, a simple movie, not much <laughs> not much tricky coverage, just a lot of lock-off shots.
1: <laughs> well, there were some great lock-off shots. There were, there. and I that's, mean,
2: I think, what works really well, right, is the combo.
1: Yeah, I mean, they really set a tone with some seriously beautiful study, you know, particularly like the, the leafless trees and stuff. I thought they set an amazing somber tone,
2: That opening couple of minutes is just masterful. It's so well done.
1: Yeah. And it's a movie that was shot for $20 million in 55 days I saw, which to me is just mind-blowing in itself. Shot big format. They used the Alexa 65. I've never shot with the big format cameras. You know, the close I've come is the Sony Venice, I guess. But quite beautiful and really wonderfully desaturated other than the red of all the blood. I I thought that was very striking that they very purposefully left everything kind of on the the downside other than the vividness of the red and the suffering in us.
2: Even if it's frozen, it's still red. You can still know what it is when your brain starts. Those opening shots were interesting to me because you're like, "What what am I looking at? And then you start putting it together and it's just horrible, which is the point.
1: Yeah. I thought it was great visual storytelling. Very interesting to me how the you know wide it felt like it was very wide lens close ups all the time, keeping it very intimate and you know, the, the protagonists, antagonist, you know, really being so intimate with the camera. in in a very still way though. The, the cameras weren't handheld. It was it was very much a tribute to the silent movie era, it felt like to me, in terms of even with the wide frames, it seemed to want to pay tribute to an older aspect ratio almost in, in a weird way.
2: It wouldn't have surprised me if it was, you know, if they'd gone for an academy version. It's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. So that's really smart. I because I had a, a similar response where I thought it was so interesting how, especially in that first sequence, once it gets past the trickery of getting out of the out of the trench, which the behind the scenes are really interesting to watch, those handoffs. And how good they were on safetying the camera on the handoffs. If you've seen those amazing. Yeah. So it's so like the beaners go in and out. Like they don't even risk that one like 30 second moment of just let the camera ride on the, the thing. They're like, nope, if we drop this thing, we can't afford another one.
1: You might not have even been able to get one. Yeah. Yeah, you know? exactly.
2: And <laughs> yeah. and then it be it really becomes, you know, a very Kubrick style dolly through the Badlands. And and it works. It totally works in the choreography of all the people in the action. The thing that I thought was interesting was how they played with the contrast on people's faces. So sometimes there'd be these moments of calm and it would be this, you know, the trickiest thing to do well, that light from nowhere, where it seems almost shadowless. And then they would do these other, you know, very strong side lights, beautiful moments inside these horrible situations. And you're right, like the lensing, so you really concentrated on the story, you really concentrated on the characters and that large format helps you can be wide and still pick your focus you know that's
1: a really interesting thing to think about that tool that they had mixed modes really well um yeah there was a time where they were following with a steady cam and all of a sudden cut to a kind of shaky handheld shot in front of them as they were walking which definitely puts you in a very different head all of a sudden yeah. You know, in the same moments, I, I you know, just really interesting storytelling I thought. I really liked what what James Friend had to offer.
2: <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, with all these films what you see is this perfect marriage of the visual to the story they're trying to tell and that's that's why we're talking about them. It's not just that they're pretty images, they're the perfect images for the story and that's that's always the tricky part. You know, you can get get lost in the thing. I'm really curious what the rule book was to keep them glued glued to the story they, what, the way they wanted it to be because, they you know,
1: it works. It, it must have been so cold and so muddy. Oh, my God. It just and, seems uh, miserable. There's so many moments yeah. I was like, oh, that crew. <laughs> All the rain gear
0: in the world. <laughs> Patrick, when you talk about their rule book, what are you referencing? I mean, as far as when you talk about them being connected to the story? Well, most of us, when we start prepping, we we
2: what's really interesting is depending on the way you work with your director, you hopefully as a cinematographer, you're asking the director the questions that eventually the cast is going to ask the director, right? If you're doing your job properly, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And if the director knows the answers to those questions, Mm -hmm. then you know what to do with the camera. So you're asking all these internal questions about the little arcs inside the scenes and then the overall arcs of the show. And, you know, if you think of the storytelling as one big arc, just think of there'd be one and then there'd be multiples and there'd be tiny little ones for every scene. And you're trying to figure all those out. And if you're asking the types of questions the actor is going to ask the director and the director knows the answers to those, it'll leave you with these moments. And the director might be like, well, I, you know, I, I had a thought about this one moment here and she might actually tell you what the moment is like what she's thinking of visually. And the two of you might go like, okay, yeah. Does that work for selling that? Even though this one person has the fewest amount of lines, the scene is about them, right? Like, let's say that as an example. And you might not have the perfect answer until the next morning when you're brushing your teeth, right? This is the beauty of long prep, but you'll eventually make in your minds or you'll write it down or you'll make kind of a Bible. and, And if you're doing it right, you'll give yourself a couple phrases that when in doubt, never forget X, right? Never forget blank. And I'm always curious what, you know, I haven't read a lot about the shooting of the film and I'm curious what that x was what was the thing that they were always what was the touchstone thing when you know the sun is going down and you got to get the shot what's the essence what's yeah what's the essence like oh it's always a 27 and it's always close or you know whatever it is when you can talk to the crew about it in that creative way then the crew can pick that up too and everyone starts moving in purpose to the story
1: this is something i want to talk about in regard to another movie actually empire of light but a movie like all quiet on the western front had to have been very i mean to a degree at least there's always room to spontaneity on, on a movie set to make but it needed to be rather meticulously planned out this was a, a highly structured job and with that that conversation beforehand was particularly critical in figuring out priorities on such a short and budgetarily challenged shoot
2: I mean, I, I kept thinking about the second ADs lining up. Yeah. Like, this is when you die in the background. This is when you die in the fore-. I mean, like the mapping out of some of those sequences. Crazy. Very well done.
0: And it doesn't surprise either of you that they chose this large format camera that I'm not familiar with. That You suggested was even a hard camera to get, given the limitations of schedule and budget on a, on a show like this.
2: No, they might have done it to help themselves. If the story comes about no matter how grand the world, like no matter how big we make the battle around the person, we always want to concentrate on the person. One of the quickest ways to do it is to keep the plane of focus on the person And a large format camera helps you do that.
1: Sure. And they also did have an Alexa Mini large format camera there, which I'm sure they used on a lot of the more intricate battle and moving shots, steady cam shots and the like and handheld. And they also have a Sony Venice there which was used for its native 2500 ASA. That, that stuff I found in reading kind of quickly.
2: That makes so much sense. This is, some of the night stuff is amazing.
1: I'm a huge fan of the Venice, I've got to say.
2: I haven't gotten to shoot with it yet.
1: <laughs> I am really, I've done four shows in a row on it at this point, And it's a workhorse in TV right now, it feels like. Yeah. And the elevated ASA setting is a game changer in a lot of ways. It's made a relationship with a production designer even more intricate and more important in a way because you can go so strongly with available light almost all the time and make choices based on that. Not having to set your base level is an amazing thing. Yeah, you're not carving out, you're actually... Yeah, it's there already. So I, I think you know that combination of cameras makes perfect sense on a movie like that. Especially at that budget for that size. Yeah, yeah. amazing.
0: Well, we'll move on to the second film on our list, Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, cinematography by Darius Kanji. Well, I haven't seen it. So I'm I'm very excited to hear what that has to say.
1: (laughs) All right, here we go. Um, It was shot as well on ARRI 65 with Panavision Vintage lenses as well as others. It's a very abstract and surreal movie. And and my notes were basically dreams, shadows, reflections, water, the world of film. It felt like the highlights were so beautifully controlled and this movie unusually so in today's era with the faster video cameras beautiful flowing long takes constantly a camera according in and out seamless and delicate low light exposures and moving from light into darkness and transitions of incredible quality at all times another very strongly rehearsed movie it felt like uh, but also quite spontaneous looking tremendous use of of intricate movement on the Trinity head. There were some shots which had incredible scope where the camera was going maybe from eight or nine feet high to you know floor height, you know, really beautifully and, and furthering the story. I thought it was a a pretty darn remarkable adventure. I'm not sure whether in my head it's the movie that I think is going to win the Oscar, but it is like many of Inarritu's movies, magical storytelling, I thought, and uh, really dove into the notions of life and death. And the camera was of great assist in doing so.
2: I can't wait to see it because when I think of Darius, I always think of that magical realism and then pairing him with this director just makes total sense to me. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. <laughs> and I got to gaff a a music video once with Darius and what was so fun about it was we were just using Kino flows and flashlights, literally. We were shooting a film because I'm ancient and it was all about how you held your light meter. You know, he's very precise and it was all foot candles. I just loved that. It's that combination of a sense of control, but it's not quite as, um, For myself shooting film, I went to spot meters because I was like, all right, I'm just going to pinpoint exactly where I want to put what part. But for him, it was that kind of a little bit of that magical thing of like the way you hold your hand, where they're going to be. And there is, there's that sense of like, that's right, that's wrong. And it's one degree of how you hold it and where, where you're pointing it towards the key. And so over the course of a few days, I got to figure out, like, I got to mentally connect with where that spot was for him. And it was such a wonderful experience for me and it, especially on something where we had very little equipment, you know, it was more about how do you hold the meter, you know, so I'm, I can't wait to see it. I, I, I imagine there's a lot of that very precise placing of things.
1: I think, yeah, I mean, there, there was mention in one of the couple of articles I read about, I mean, we're in an age two now with the radio controlled lighting implements we have at our disposal, little, you know, our, our titans in the steer tubes and, and our, our small panels and stuff that we can control every bit of temperature and intensity by radio. So, I identify when you were talking about Darius's style, it's a lot of what I try to do these days and why I'm so fond of the Sony Venice camera because it really does allow you to grab hold in that way and, and make your very precise little choices. Um, as in TV, you hurl your buckets of painted things sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> but with that, that willingness to play a very dangerous underexposure game and still really read the emotion of your protagonist while denying them, it's a tremendous amount of information. It was it was done with such taste, I thought. There's been a lot of complaints lately about TV going too dark. And I can't say I disagree with that, to be honest with you at the times. But this was artful use of the absence of light. Ah, oh,
0: fantastic.
1: Yeah, you know, really nice, I have to say. That's exciting. Yeah.
0: I don't think I followed his career closely, but uh, in looking it up, realizing that he did some of my favorite films, Delicatessen Seven, when you talk about that sort of magical realism and that camera, how do you see this in the context of his work overall, this film particularly?
1: That's a hard one for me. Uh, you know, I've always seen him as um, very aware and masterful in his control of ratio, of light and shadow. This movie plays differently in a way than that, uh, it goes to a muddier type of experience. Of low light. It's much more spontaneous and feels less designed in certain ways than some of the moods that he's created earlier. But at the same time, you know, even in the midst of the chaos of spinning a dance floor, it always appears under control outside of the story, is not necessarily always in control, it feels like. So oh, that's nice.
0: Patrick, something for you to look forward to. And our listeners who haven't got it yet. Yeah, I can't <laughs> wait.
1: Can't wait. I recommend it. I liked all the movies this year. They're nominated for cinematography.
0: Well, then I'll be interested to hear what you guys have to say about the third film on our list, Elvis cinematography by Mandy Walker.
2: I mean, anyone who's got to keep up with Baz Luhrmann's got their work cut out for them. (laughs) What's always interesting to me about what the cinematographers have to pull off with him is this level of sheen and control. It's a really like, I think if you weren't a cinematographer, you might think it was easier and it's so hard because she is, I assume she has to put herself in a place where she is carving out what you see because there's, you know, there's this gloss to so much of it and the camera movement is, you know, completely out of control because, you know, with Lerman, it's always moving. I think anyone who gets the chance to shoot for him is lucky, but also has the work cut out for them. <laughs>
1: it's a big movie. Yeah. Big performances big movement, cranes, colors. I thought it was really well executed upon. I feel there are parts of it, but this didn't have to do the cinematography. It could have been more succinct potentially, Yeah, but that's just an overall movie review. But I thought that Mandy Walker did an extraordinary job balancing out some amazing visual storytelling with that need to provide dozens of moving shots and complicated ones. And, and to
2: have the, the level of control of on a stage when you're on a city street and a corner, right? Like seeing in two directions on a city as he's driving around in his car, surrounded by all these other cars and and it's like the same level of control just blown up to this, you know, to blocks. Totally. Yeah.
1: Mandy spoke about how um she went through a lot of actual Elvis footage and and the desire for that Baz Lumina and and she had to uh, really duplicate those performances and the and the depiction of those performances and how she took her grip crew and her camera crew to watch all the footage and then they would go to all the rehearsals and just move around with still cameras That's so smart to gauge the movement and really get a sense of it so they went into it with the real overall like you said control and mastery of the situation
2: I was struck by the palette of that comeback yeah. special, like to nail that just the way they did and have it be both modern and feel like it's of the period. Really, really tricky. Any false step and it doesn't work and you watch it and then you go, it made me go look at that performance, old videos of it that are online. And I was
1: like, I was really impressed by how they, well, they pulled that off. Really well done. Absolutely. Yeah. They had a, couple of different treatments during the show uh, when they went to las vegas they went anamorphic they had been using spherical lenses before that for the earlier days but that was a really nice kind of seamless transition it really played and uh spoke of the stakes and the difference in level and you know that elvis and tom were you know experiencing
2: yeah that's really really smart and make all the vegas lights feel a certain way and
0: yeah for those of us less familiar with the technology, you mentioned a switch from spherical lenses to anamorphic. What visual changes might we notice as viewers if we were watching for them? Well, it does two things. It's
2: one is the way faces can start being rendered, and certainly the sweaty, aging, you know, getting beaten up Elvis. You come into a close-up with the right anamorphic and it distorts his face a little in in a way that's correct. And then the main thing we probably both think of right away is the Japanese have a term for it that we use and we all pronounce differently. I, I pronounce it bokeh or boke. the way the out-of-focus lights are in the background. And in spherical, though, they'll replicate however many blades are in the shutter, right? So like old movies where you see little squares or hexagons in the background, that's because there's only that many blades in the camera. If they put little hearts back there, you'd see hearts back in the (laughs) out-of-focus highlights. And then anamorphic because the image gets compressed and then re-expanded, the expanded highlights give you those streaks. And depending on the lenses, they can really start getting across things in the image, which is perfect for Vegas. I mean, yeah. did I say that right, Todd?
1: <laughs> that all felt really good. I mean, you know, I always feel as if anamorphic gives you a, a world where you're asking more of your focus pullers because you're overall giving visually imperfect worlds since you're stretching and unstretching images in the creation and recreation of them, it becomes a very selective Experience for the audience.
2: Yeah, you have to be careful about racks, right? Because they can look really weird.
1: Yeah. It's a hard way to shoot often enough, I think, but very much worth it in a movie like this, I thought. One thing I do want to add was this was a movie where they used live grain, as it's called, in the making of the movie. They injected a type of graininess to bring it back to the era within the production of it, as opposed to leaving that all as a post production. They laid it in in camera, to a degree, in the look.
2: Oh, wow. So they could see
1: what it was doing. At least that's what I got from my quick reading of one of Mandy Walker's. I didn't know that was possible. Well, that's cool. It said something about experiencing live grain on set. I know that another thing TAR did, which I was going to discuss, which I learned about, which was pretty interesting in all this. But just having done a period piece myself for a TV show... That's one of the trickiest things is injecting grain in today's cameras. It's really hard; it doesn't pick up well. So that that's been a big battle, but I think we're, it's finally being won.
2: Yeah, I, I want to find out more how they were how they were doing that and seeing it when they were doing it because it would yeah. it might shift the way you deal with shadows,
1: especially or knowing things aren't going to get too crazy muddy. Yeah, yeah. This was Mandy Walker, from what I understand, it's her twenty first feature. And it completely shows. Yeah, she's a badass. I mean, just so polished. Yeah.
0: The fourth film on our list is Empire of Light Cinematography by Roger Deacons. I've heard of that guy, the Roger Deakins <laughs> guy.
2: I, I just thought it was so I got I found myself getting emotional. And I think it would have happened even if the music wasn't helping me along, because it's the it's such a wonderful combination of two experienced storytellers where your director and your cinematographer are absolutely in sync. And there are these little moments and they know exactly how to get them. And it doesn't feel like they're hitting you with a hammer. It's just the exact right shot at the exact right time. Her hand on the edge of the tub towards the opening of the film, just little things. You see all these really smart choices along the way, like the top floor, every other window has a different shade of color on it. And it really makes you feel like It's old, you know, it was more lively in its uh, youth and now age has done a thing to it, which is nice to think about in a film that's a period film set in the 80s, early 80s. And yeah, I just love watching Roger make it feel like, oh, the light just happened to be beautiful and soft and from just the exact right direction, that moment, every shot.
0: (laughs) amazing.
1: Yeah, this was a movie shot on location, basically, and not a big budget movie. A lot of um, time issues, which I, is something that Roger Deakins doesn't always wrestle with. As any I think cinematographer worth their salt, and boy, he sure is worth his salt. He went about solving his problems, and with that, you wouldn't know there were any.
2: Yeah, correct. You watch it, and you're like, "Oh, it's, you know, they he must have had all the time in the world because it
1: all seems yeah.
2: so controlled."
1: It was shot on an Alexa Mini large format LF with signature primes and some Cook S7s. It felt like a a very straightforward, simply shot, elegantly simply shot movie. I was really impressed because I I always find the Mini kind of crushes blacks a lot. And I felt as if this was a movie which allowed those, when they did get crushed, it was a celebration of it, not a limitation.
2: Right, right.
1: So, you know, again, just another really, beautiful kind of seamless natural job with i think completely appropriate embellishment
2: it just made me think now with you talking about it that i i would recommend students watch this film once or even scenes like watch it and find your favorite scene the scene that you connect to emotionally and then watch it again with the sound off because the shots are not complicated but they're correct Mm -hmm. right And, and And that's notwithstanding, however complicated the lighting must have been, but like where the camera goes or the type of move the camera is making is within the world of achievability. But there's so many subtle choices getting made and knowing the experience of the, you know, everyone involved to know that that's the shot that makes you feel that way at that moment. It's really wonderful.
1: There's ways in which it made me feel more like the way in which one shoots a TV show where even when I'm prepping, I never quite know what the shots are unless it's a very particular type of scene until the director and the actors are happy. And then you know what the shots are. Right. And it felt to me like this was that type of movie where a lot happened before final decisions on framing and treatment were made in a certain way while being prepared ahead of time. It felt like it was very much a a response to what was in front of them.
2: Right. But you know, when they were scouting and Roger's like, you know, it'd be great if they stood in front of this window right here at this time of day. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be good if it was a cloudy day, you know, like.
1: He talks about how he needed the art department to help him out on this movie so he could keep it steady because of the demands of the day and not being able, if they were to be, you know, sun contingent the art department built a skylight in order to give it a permanence and ability to shoot and spin the room on what was the tighter schedule
2: on that top floor set.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. That's a really smart idea. What a beautiful room that was.
2: Oh, unbelievable. And when you have the characters actually talk about it's, you know, one character says this used to be, or this, it was so beautiful and the other character says still, it still is really wonderful.
1: The other thing in this movie that I loved as a former camera assistant Celebration of loops, when the projectionist threads the camera and he talks about loops and an intermittent motion in an essence. And that just, as a filmmaker, that little conversation celebration made me so happy. It took me back to other classic cinema moments.
2: Yeah, I got really happy when they were projecting being there and just like the flawless switchover, right? Like, you yep. know, you're like, that's... And, and it's so interesting. To this day, the film world is full of people who don't get any credit and they don't do it for any credit, but they do it for the love of the craft of it. I, I think of lifelong gaffers to see them make the changes to the technology, to see a gaffer who started who knows how to how to trim a brood arc walk by you with a tube in their hand that's changing color and isn't plugged in anything. And they have yeah. and they still know exactly where they're going to put that thing to make it work to do everything right. I love that. And to me that's the projectionist in this movie. It's to the outside world, he seems grumpy, but to him, he's an artist. He's an absolute meticulous artist, and he's correct. He's right, and he doesn't care what anyone else thinks, and he
0: loves what he's doing, and I I just love the celebration of that. Well, the fifth and final film on our list is Tar, cinematography by Florian Hoffmeister. The
2: other one I haven't seen, so I apologize. I, I'm very excited to hear what you have to say.
1: I saw Tar a couple of months ago, and I've refreshed myself with a quick review of the last couple of days, but I would say that movie with a, what I've seen called and would call myself a visual authenticity, it's got a real naturalism and beauty to it. It's a very unassuming looking movie in a way. The naturalism to me was quite impressive. It's, it's clean and cool, yet the sepia of the wood tones seem to govern the overriding theme of the movie. It, again, was shot with an ARRI 65 camera. The the large format cameras had their year this year.
2: It's just funny because now everyone's going to switch to the the 35, right? Everyone's going to switch to the smaller format camera.
1: (laughs) I hear great things about the 35, too. Yeah, it's Uh,
2: the latitude, right?
1: Yeah. They they also, though, did have a a mini LF for moving shots and the like. ARRI Signature Primes, which are very clean and cool. And kind of unforgiving in their way, but I thought the movie beautifully softened them. And one of the things I think helped them with that was Ari helped Mr. Hoffmeister in developing what they call a digital emulsion template. This is something that they put into the camera and it's it's basically a, a look, you know, that is then used and they can see on set as they're as they're writing and compare it to log and make sure they're safe and happy if they like but it was a way of mimicking film curves in a way that I guess they feel hadn't really been able to be done before. I guess it allowed the highlights to sing a little bit, allowed you to dig into the deep end without worrying about the bright side as much maybe. Certainly had very true flesh tones within the overall treatment of the show. And um, I thought really cosmetically pleasing movie as well.
0: You mentioned film curves. I don't think I understand exactly what you're referencing there. You gave some examples, but overall, what are you saying is improved?
1: The first thing to say is, you know, most of us at least are familiar with the notion of a bell curve, you know, that chart which depicts things on an X, Y axis. When you used to get a can of film or you used to look things up with Kodak, they would have various graphs and curves as to sensitivity to different types of light and the like and, and under you know certain types of filtration and sensitivities and contrasts and law. And one of the most elusive qualities in shooting digitally is finding that similar stretch that film allowed. It used to be when shooting film, you'd expose for the shade and you'd let the highlights do what they would because they almost inevitably showed up in a rather pleasant way or certainly not unpleasant. Um, whereas in video, it's traditionally about protecting the highlights. Your eye will fool you when looking at a sheer curtain on a daylit window. Um, you really need to go to the camera and play with the exposure there and protect that before you do anything else. The outside world doesn't render the same as it did when we were shooting film and that's a necessary storytelling sacrifice often enough, and and it takes extra work and extra money to balance those things out now. But by trying to provide a look on the camera that emulates that and structures it so that your image, while you're looking at it, can be constructed and built to honor that dynamic, uh, gives you a more traditionally cinematic type look, potentially. There are a lot of different choices to be made, and Part of it is every scene tells its own story and the desires within that, those scenes. And and that's one of the things when, you know, in talking about this dynamic motion template, Bardo was a movie where the outside world was remarkably present. It was unusually present for a contemporary movie. And I really enjoyed that a lot. And sometimes I thought it's, well, they made sure to shoot it no later than 10 o'clock in the morning because the sun, was behind that building and didn't create a full exposure on it. But at the same time, the exposure management on that movie, the precision of all of it was really remarkable.
2: Yeah, it is interesting how so often uh, when you want to tell the story that's most emotionally real, you have to exact so much control on the the real world because you're funneling it through all this technology and you want the technology to disappear. So you're making all these choices to make the technology not there. So then you start thinking about like, well, how does the human eye see things? And, you know, like, do we need 20K? We probably don't, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm curious with TAR, do you feel like they did a great job at not falling into what could have been a pitfall of making a movie about music?
1: No, I I respected its examination of a rather um, difficult person.
2: Ah, That's great. (laughs) That's a great way to put it.
1: you know, a very straightforward movie, uh, conversationally. Very straightforward. Scenes were just very honestly shot, it felt oh, cool. like, to me. Great use of... We haven't talked a lot about camera angles uh, today. At, t- at times, we have with wi- wider shots and the intimacy of camera. But Tar used low angles really well. Oh, cool. Um, as an expression of her power. I thought camera movement, camera height on Tar played a very important role. And when the movie was eye level... It was to me it really helped express what other people were sensing in her.
2: Yeah, that's cool.
1: Which is, you know, contributed to her not feeling so pleasant and troubled.
2: You gotta love an actor who goes after that part too, right? And yeah. just well, yeah. Total respect.
1: <laughs> yeah. It can't be an easy head to get into, Day in and day
2: right. out. Uh, actors are amazing. Right, that's why. They I love sure are. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> and you know, and and as some, you know, as Synthos or directors, you know, helping actors be comfortable and confident. And making sure they feel as if our part of the story is being told properly and not taking over.
2: Right. That that we're there to to support them. Right. Create the milieu. Yeah. Everyone's here for the story. And it doesn't exist without a, an actor speaking the words.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Ted, I have a question for you. We discussed this film because it was also nominated for film editing. And a hypothesis was put forward that maybe some of these scenes are actually subjective. In other words, that it's what she's experiencing rather than what's literally happening. And I'm curious from the cinematography perspective, if you noticed any evidence that would support or work against this hypothesis.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I, I found that it brought me back to something that I haven't thought about in probably a couple months since I really saw the movie. And I thought that opening really led us to something without giving stuff away, I guess. But within that, I thought they did a really good job of of your knowing right off the bat that it was someone else's view there. I wish I had seen it more recently to really give it a more vivid level of conversation. But I, I definitely felt as if there was a real sense between kind of the handheld of it and almost the quickness of it, the inconvenience of it, often enough, I thought that that really told the story. I, I love visual inconvenience. I like when things are imperfect. I as if that helps further stories and i think that part of tar did that tar's world had a, a greater degree of perfection and solidity to it and that was more, more of a shake-up if i remember correctly that's a wonderful turn of phrase the visual inconvenience that's a it's very well said Doug. Well, thanks I, i've always been a fan of it you know make the audience work a little yeah there's a reward to it
2: yeah no it's wonderful well, I think it, uh, is there. Any, I'm sorry. I'm maybe going to ask the question you're going to ask. <laughs> is there any other film this year that you wish was on this list, or something wow. you saw that you really loved?
1: I don't know whether it would be an Academy choice or not, but the movie I walked away from last year, being in ways the most impressed with, was one of the silliest, and that was Bullet Train. Oh, that was really fun. I loved that. Movie. That was wonderful. Sensational. It's unabashed willingness to saturate and move and go kind of nuts and vivid. Oh,
2: it's a perfect match to the story they're telling.
1: All these movies did that. It feels like yeah. to me. they all honored their stories really well.
2: Yeah. I felt like that with everything everywhere all at once too. Like I love that it felt like an indie film that just went off the rails and then did all this cool stuff inside it. I thought that was just, I was like I, my family and I went and saw that in the theater and we were, and my daughter and I were just like,
0: yes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> when we walked out, we were right. like, Oh my God. It was one of those ones. that was like, can we just go back and watch it again? <laughs> Because it just, um, it, right, and yeah. it, it's interesting, the visual inconvenience thing, because you felt like it was a real story because it wasn't perfect, right? Because you could tell they're on location and dealing with the location work and not dealing with the world's biggest budget. And that helped. I thought that made that movie better.
1: I always respect that. Oh, right? Yeah.
2: The other movie I loved the look of was Decision to Leave. Have you seen that movie? it's cool... No,
1: but I'm going to now.
2: Oh my God. Talk about a point of view and the camera's height and headroom. And I got to interview the cinematographer for American cinematographer and ask him, you know, there's interesting points of view from behind things or literally through other people's eyes, things like that. And it's remarkably controlled. Yeah. It's a really impressive movie. Thanks for the recommendation. I love the movie, but I also thought the cinematography was completely crazy pants. Good. Nice. Excellent. In the opposite direction of like that and bullet train couldn't be further apart from each other. And I, <laughs> cool. I love both of those ideas as being, you know, movies that as cinematographers, you walk out and you're like, damn. <laughs> yeah,
1: really neat.
0: Guys, on that note, we're going to call it a wrap. And that is a wrap on 10 episodes of Oscar Insights. Thanks for bringing us home. Joe. Congratulations, Skid.
1: Well done, Skid.
0: <laughs> for, for all my guests, as you guys are standing in for now, it's been a pleasure having everybody on. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, below the line, one word dot biz. That's B-I-Z. As I mentioned before, you can also find all 10 of this year's Oscar nominee episodes on the website as well. I'm working on one more awards-related episode now, an Oscar epilogue, where we talk about the ceremony itself with actual attendees, but whether it wraps season 15 or kicks off season 16 is still TBD. Either way, I hope you enjoy the Academy Awards this weekend and join us again on the other side. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. To all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line.